New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street book club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and we'll never give it up. <laughs> Literature is for the masses. Where to put your money down the how to watch your assets. Yeah, uplifting others is a passion. My brother Evan, he will turn it into action. New Black Wall Street Book Club. You should come read with come us. Read with us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss. Yeah. If we all just come together, there's no limit for there's us. No limit for us. <laughs> Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street. Evan, take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best selling author of the book. The Black Billionaires Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealthy people. We can find that book by going to the website www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. That's right, Daily Motivation for African-American Success. This comes out of a book written by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Uh, today's title is The Conservative Party. Today's title is The Conservative Party. <clears throat> Here's our quote of the day. Our quote comes from Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he's the guitarist, if you remember him. Jimi Hendrix says this, and I quote, I don't give a damn what others say. It's okay to color outside of the lines. I don't give a damn what others say. It's okay to color outside of the lines. And here's our passage of the day. Uh, here's where we're gonna get our motivation. Let's read. Many of us bristle like porcupines if anyone dares to tell us what to do. We're insulted by the very idea that we need advice or guidance of any kind. Allow ourselves to be bossed around. Never. Thank you very much, but we'll make our own decision. Yet the vast majority of us are followers at heart. Our dress, our talk, our tastes, our habits are almost always styled by the dictates of one group or another. In our need to fit in, we have formed and shaped ourselves very carefully to be apart rather than apart. Business executives and college professors may criticize the peer pressure that has young people wearing unlaced gym shoes and starter jackets. But what of all those pinstripe suits and wingtip shoes marching in lockstep? What are all those rumpled tweed jackets and baggy wool sweaters? Isn't that conformity? Are we afraid to break out of the pack? In a sense, we all conform, and to a degree, we're all conservative. Most of our waking hours are spent following guidelines that are not of our own making. We go along to get along, keeping pace with our associates as best we can. The fact that we do conform is unquestionable. To ask ourselves why we so hotly proclaim otherwise is the real question in our search for greater self awareness. 
We all conform. And to a degree, we're all conservative. Most of our waking hours are spent following guidelines that are not of our own making. We go along to get along. Keeping pace with our associates as best we can. The fact that we do conform is unquestionable. To ask ourselves why we so hotly proclaim otherwise is the real question in our search for greater self-awareness. And here's our affirmation of the day. Here's what you want to allow to take root into your heart, your subconscious, and then you can grow and develop this thing by repeating it over and over and over again until it brings forth a harvest into your life. It's a little long, so I'll give it to you first. Repeat after me. I may follow the crowd in terms of dress and style, but not in terms of my thinking. Everybody put in the comments below, but not. But not in terms of my thinking. Let's do it again. Repeat after me. I may follow the crowd in terms of dress and style, but not in terms of my thinking. Let's do it one more time, people. This time for the people in the back. Let's make sure that they know that we mean business. It's time to say it with some conviction. Repeat after me. I may follow the crowd in terms of dress and style, but not in terms of my thinking. Ladies and gentlemen, the way in which you think really determines the rest. The way in which you think really determines the rest. The Conservative Party. Daily Motivations for African American Success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Daily Motivations for African American Success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Quick word from our sponsor. Don't just buy black, decorate black. ERGJ Black Bazaar is the Afrocentric marketplace, and we specialize in urban home decor. Anything from shower sets to wall tapestries to duvet cover sets, you can decorate your entire home with original black art inspired gifts. Check us out at www.ergjblackbazaar.com, www.ergjblackbazaar.com. ERGJ Black Bazaar, the Afrocentric marketplace. We make group economics easy. The New Black Wall Street Book Club presents Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Wills. Let's read. (music) 
Well, my beautiful people, we're going to hop right into the meat of our time here tonight on the uh, New Black Wall Street Book Club, where we are getting into or continuing along in our journey into Black Fortunes, which is the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. The story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. And we are now into chapter seven. That's right, chapter seven, which I think we should kind of go through. It's about four parts, so we'll just go through this today. We'll just hit up and complete chapter seven. Uh, chapter seven's title is Bob Church versus Jim Crow. Bob Church versus Jim Crow. Let's read. So this is back in 1862 in... Memphis, Tennessee, 1862, okay, okay, so we're talking about 150 years ago, people, 150 years ago, we're going to be reading about Bob Church and uh, versus Jim Crow, let's get it, so uh, let's remember who Bob Church was, he was, the, uh, he was the brother who was on the boat with his father, father came and got him, if you guys get to catch up on previous episodes, you can check out the New Black Wall Street Book Club across all podcast platforms, uh, and, uh, and uh, at one time he uh, crashed the boat, they got on another boat, and this time uh, there was a war kind of sort of going on, and he jumped out uh, of the boat, and then uh, I don't know, we gonna, guess we're going to find out what happened after that, so... Uh, so after he swam to freedom in Mississippi and emerged on the shore of the Union-occupied town of Memphis, Robert Reed Church was finally a free man. He was first finally a free man. But he also faced starting life over on land. Now think about that for a second. So if you guys remember Bob, Bob Church, he's been a slave. He was a slave to his father. Uh, and now he jumped out the boat. I guess the uh, the other other army came and ca capsized the boat. And now he's on in the Mississippi as he got out of the river. And he is a free man. But he's got to start over. Everybody put God's going to start over. He's got to start over. Now this is going to be very difficult. Because many people... Many people would rather stay, be, be, remain a slave just so they can continue versus swimming to freedom and having to start over. See, see, many of us, we're scared to start over. And I want to tell you today that I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you've been through. It's never too late to start over especially if you're going to start over free. See, free has so many different layers to it. And it may not be in uh, 2019 that we are physically enslaved, but some of us need to start over emotionally free. Uh, some of us uh, need to start over financially free. Some of us may need to start over psychologically free. We got stinking thinking. But see, the thought of starting over can even be like this thing, like I'd rather keep doing what I've been doing, although I'm a slave. 
the thought of me starting over from scratch at this point in time of my life just not might be this might not be the option that I choose. So it goes back to what Joshua said. That's for me and my house. We choose such and such. And my question to you is tonight, what do you choose? Would you just stay on the boat and continue on as a slave in whatever way you might be a slave today? Or will you jump out the boat, swim to the shore, and start over free? He had small savings from tips he had earned on the boat, but no friends or allies to speak of in town. He decided to seek out his best possible lifeline, his father, Captain Church. He showed up on his father's doorstep and Captain Church invited him in. They retreated to the parlor, sat together in armchairs and talked. Captain Church expressed regret for having turned Robert over to the Confederacy. I had no choice, he told him. Robert forgave the captain, who agreed to do what he could to back him in his endeavors in Memphis, without, of course, openly acknowledging that they were father and son. In the first days as a free man in Memphis, Robert also met a woman named Louisa Lou Ayers. She was a former house slave from a prominent white Memphis family and had remained as a servant with them after the Union forces had arrived. Lou had been provided with an education while she was in their service and could read, she could write, and speak a few words of French. She was 17 with soft features, skin the color of sand, loosely curled hair pinned in an updo, and deep set eyes. Okay, okay now. She was best known for her laugh, which was lit, which was lilting and infectious and charmed everyone she met, including Robert. Robert liked Lou's formal education and genteel manner. To most who encountered him, he was gruff and spartan, betraying his upbringing as a riverboat slave. Often he spoke only when spoken to and lapsed in bro into broken English. In social situations, however, he was convivial, telling stories and chatting about current events, channeling the southern charms of his father and the businessman on his boats. He began to call on Lou, often after they met, and thought about asking for her hand in marriage. As he was falling in love with her, however, he was nagged by thoughts of his slave wife, Margaret Pico, and their daughter, Laura Church in New Orleans. In Memphis, there was peace, as the colored troops of the Union held control of the city, but elsewhere, the Civil War made much of the South a dangerous battlefront. There was no way he could get to them. He and Lou were falling for each other. Perhaps, he thought, the best thing to do would be move on from Margaret. A few months after they met, he asked Lou to be his wife. Robert and Lou married in Memphis in 1863 in front of friends and family in the yard of a mansion that belonged to the family that owned her. Captain Church attended, and the family that owned Lou purchased her an expensive wedding dress from New York City. A few months after they were married, Lou gave birth to a daughter on September 23rd of 1863, the day after Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that named their they named her Mary Church after Captain Church Captain Church's wife and daughter. After Captain Church's wife and daughter. Let me move this. After Robert became a father for the second time, he was eager to introduce his daughter to his father. He traveled across town to his father's estate. In Captain Church's parlor, the old ship commander bounced Robert's daughter Mary on his knee. 
You've got a good girl here, Bob. He told him. You met. You have to make sure to raise her right. Captain Church was proud of Robert, even if he did not say it aloud. The two shared a bond that could not be openly spoken of. It would be years before Robert would reveal to his own child that Captain Church, his former owner, was her grandfather. So we're getting into, this is a part one, by the way, of, of, of chapter seven. And we're laying the groundwork for uh, Mr. Uh, Bob Church, who is now a free man in Memphis, remarried, had a daughter, and now beginning to start his life over. And I would say really start his life uh, because his life up until that point was as a, as a slave. Uh, his life up to that point was dictated. Now he started, he's, it's like being born again. I mean, he's starting over free. Everybody put a console hashtag free in capital letters. He's starting over free. Black Fortune, uh, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter seven, Bob Church versus Jim Crow, part two. Bob Church versus Jim Crow, part two. In 1866, after the war ended and African-Americans free were em emancipated, Robert traveled to New Orleans to see Margaret Pico and seven-year-old Laura in New Orleans. When he found his former wife, she was married to another man and had given Laura her new husband's surname, Napier. Robert requested that he be allowed to take Laura to Memphis, where he would pay for her to be put in school. A year later, he sent for Laura and had her brought up to Memphis via steamboat. In Tennessee, she lived with Robert, Lou, and Mary and changed her name to Laura Church. In the months after emancipation, the Union troops stayed in town to keep the peace. The town was full of Confederate luminaries such as Nathan Bedford Forrest and the ex-Confederate President Jefferson Davis, as well as a population of former slaves. In streets made of wood planks, creeks, as they patrolled by a police force made of Confederate veterans, the local government was dominated by rebel sympathizing Democrats. In many towns in the South, including the Memphis Union Brigades, colored troops were left in place to protect the free black population after slavery ended. However, the troops' presence stirred resentment in the ex-Confederates in those towns who felt they were being occupied by Northern emissaries of the federal government. The Union troops in Memphis were mostly black men, many of them former slaves. During the day, they patrolled the streets and kept order to the chagrin of many whites in town especially the police force. At night, the colored troops enjoyed drinking and carousing in parlors and brothels. Robert, who had come of age, working in the parlors of Captain Church's ships, saw a business opportunity. Everybody put it down, so opportunity. Robert, who had come up working in the parlors of Captain Church's ships, he saw a business opportunity. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, kings and queens, this is what's so very interesting about life is that it can take what was bad and 
put into perspective, come full circle into an opportunity that could be good. And it may not even necessarily be bad, but just, you know, it just didn't work out at the time. I don't know. I'll tell you, I'll give you a quick story. Same thing is happening to me right now. Um, I, I have a retail store and a retail online store, and I was thinking about opening up a physical location. And I went to this location and I thought, yes, this is the time. This, this is the place. Let's do it. I put my deposit down, $750. And then a little bit later, I was like, no, nah, this is not the time. This still may be the place, but it's not time to go. So I, I, I got, I was, I, I, I bailed out of the deal, and I, but I didn't get my 750 back. But then come full circle, uh, now that same space or place is now offering opportunities for opportunities for uh, for uh, for small businesses to come set up in the parking lot on Saturdays and Sunday as a way to draw attention from the crowd outside or the street outside to bring them over and they're offering that opportunity to op to small business owners for free so that gives me an opportunity for free to recoup plus some my original deposit some one year ago so I, i'm seeing this i'm seeing a very similar thing i'm reading right now a business opportunity the same way that robert church saw a business opportunity from his past that's represented now in his present and let's just see if Mr. Robert Church takes advantage of the opportunity that he sees. With the loan from his wife, who had opened a successful wig shop, he started a billiard hall. In 1866, he applied for a business license, but was denied on the basis of his color. To hell with them, he thought, and set up his business without the paperwork. We know that, he got a side hustle now. Uh, uh oh, I missed. Oh, his billiard hall was in the front, in the, in the storefront on Gayaso Street, just off Second Avenue near, near the riverfront. Inside, he set up pool tables, a bar stocked with whiskey, and a cash register. In an adjacent room, he built a ballroom where he threw soirees and dances attended by locals, which on occasion devolved into brawls that spilled out into the street. One night, two white police officers showed up at Church's billiard hall and arrested him for operating a billiard hall without a license. Uh, Robert hired a lawyer, and the case went to trial in April of 1866, just days after Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act was passed by the Radical Republican Caucus in Congress, overriding a presidential veto of Andrew Jackson. It declared that all persons born in the United States were citizens and entitled to equal treatment under the law. On April 17th, the charges against church were Drop. Confederates in Memphis saw his victory as an affirmation of the Radical Republican Civil Rights Act. He swaggered away from the courtroom a free man, but also a marked one. The events occurred against a backdrop of escalating racial tensions in Memphis, making Church a hero among blacks and a villain among the ex-Confederate white population. In Memphis, an easy peace existed between the races. It was shattered by free black men taking a liberty that the ex-Confederates could not stomach, having sex with white women. A riot began with a quarrel between the Memphis police and black Union soldiers outside of brothel by the riverfront, where black Union troops were known to bed white prostitutes. The scrum escalated, and several of the Union troops were gunned down. The Memphis police then went on a murderous crawl throughout the city, shooting black men and white northern carpet baggers and raping black women. 
As the riots raged on, word reached Robert that the mob was looking for him. They wanted to kill the black man who had opened a business in spite of the state and then used the Civil Rights Act to get off scot-free. As Robert dressed that day, Lou, pregnant with their second child, begged him to remain home for fear he'd be killed. He slicked his black hair, goatee, and mustache straight with oil and put on his jacket. No! He told her he was not going to hide. He showed up at his burial hall and opened shop. He stayed until nightfall, but hardly anyone showed up. Still, he refused to close shop. He wasn't hoping to avoid the white mob. He was waiting for them. Never be a coward, Captain Church had taught him. It had just begun to rain when a group of men finally showed up. Get out here, the men standing outside wearing police uniforms and holding guns yelled. David Roach, an Irish police officer, told Robert to close up the hall. Robert went back in the shop, turned his, turned his back on the men. He heard the crash of shattering glass as bullets started to ring out. He then heard a pop and felt a burning in the back of his neck. It took him a moment to realize he'd been shot. The men stormed the store as Church lay on the floor, bleeding from the head. They drank from bottles and barrels of whiskey at the bar. They removed several hundred dollars from the cash register. They broke his pool tables. Finally, they left him for dead and put a torch to his building with him inside. The rain slowed the flames as they engulfed the store, and somehow Robert dragged himself from the burning building, half dead with a bullet wound in his head. He had escaped possible death for the third time. Whew. It's hard to read. <laughs> this ain't easy to read, people. I'm just trying to tell you. Bob Church versus Jim Crow. Now, Robert, Robert's a survivor. Everybody put guys on, I'm a survivor. Mr. Church is just as simple as a survivor, man. It's the third time. First time was in the uh, when he capsized the boat. Second time, he, he, in, a, he, in, a, he in the Mississippi River. And now he, he even survived a gunshot wound to the head. How the hell he... he uh, he dragged himself out of a burning building with a gunshot wound to his head. We don't know. But he's a survivor. He's a survivor. Black Fortress. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Bob Church versus Jim Crow, part three. Hey, uh, man, man, my baby man, Darren Smith said it wasn't his time to go yet. It, 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 it wasn't time for him to go. Let's get it. No one in town heard from Robert in the aftermath of the riots. Was he dead? Had he run? A bipartisan consort of congressmen led by the radical Republican Elihu Washburn arrived in town from Washington, D.C. to conduct an investigation of the riots. They interviewed black Tennesseans, local government officials, and the police officers involved in the riot. Toward the end, a man with a wound on his head came ambling up to speak with the congressman. He introduced, he introduced himself as Robert Reed Church. How much of a colored man are you? Washburn asked. He perhaps was shocked that the riders had attacked a man who looked so white. I do not know, very little. My father was a white man. My mother was as white as I am. Robert told the story of being shot and lying bleeding as the rioters had ransacked his store. He named his assailant as Officer David Roach, adding, he is down at the tavern right now. 
After the investigation, the federal government opted not to bring any charges as a result of the riots, and most of the policemen kept their job. Yeah, that ain't changed. <laughs> and the more things change, the more they stay the same. Let me uh, read that again, just in case y'all don't get it, uh, because this has been going on since about 150 years or so. Uh, yeah, uh, so he named his assailant as Officer Dave Roach, adding he is down at the tavern right now. After the investigation, after all of the court take place, after the defendant and the and the prosecutors do all their deliberation, after the trial is over, we know what happened. We know the story. We have seen it 50 million times in our life. The federal government opted not to bring any charges as a result of the riots, and most of the policemen kept their jobs. Yeah. Ain't changed. Still the same. <laughs> 46 black people were killed. Uh, five black women raped. 75 people, including Robert, injured. Over 100 were robbed. 91 homes, 12 black schools, and five black churches burned. And $100,000 or $1.6 in today's terms of property damage was done. We have decided this does not merit federal charges, the investigators concluded. In the aftermath of the riot and the government's inaction in dealing with its perpetrators, thousands left Memphis, but thousands more stayed, refusing to give in to mob terror. Among them was Robert Reed Church. As merchants closed their stores and families left their homes, Church began buying real estate. Now, do y'all hear what's really happening right now, right? So what's happening right now is for fear, everyone's leaving. So this is another form of what we would call today gentrification, right? People leaving, giving up their homes, giving up their businesses, going to another place where there may be opportunity. When it mo when people leave, then the values of the properties, what? They go down because you got a lot more supply than demand. And guess what Robert Reed Church did? And I think it's a blueprint for what black folk need to be doing today. You know what he did? Let me buy up all the damn real estate. Okay? Let me buy up all the real estate I can while it's on sale. I ain't going nowhere. Y'all want to leave? Go ahead. Let me get these properties. <laughs> You better go, Robert. He a survivor. This man is a survivor. I, I mean, it, see, it's something about, I mean, you don't get the millionaire status without being a survivor. I'm just trying to tell you. And you also don't get the millionaire status without being able to notice and to see and to take advantage of this thing called opportunity. Everybody else leaving? Price is going down. I ain't going nowhere. Let me get my, let me get, let me get my, let me build up my portfolio. Okay now, Mr. Turk. I'm excited now because you, he in the money. He in the money. Okay. He purchased five properties in what was coming to be known as the Bill Street District. Oh, y'all seen the Bill Street? Isn't there a movie or show or something like that about Bill Street? I think that just came out not too long ago. Uh, so that is probably about Robert Reed Church. Okay. Bill Street. Oh, we got who go? Who want to go see Bill Street with me? Is it somewhere? 
I, I need to order it. I need to get it on Netflix. I think it's something called Bill Street. Somebody give me some information about Bill Street. I think it's a show or a movie or something. I heard it, seen it. I don't watch too much TV. So, yo, know, excuse me, but I heard that name come up. In 1867, months after having nearly died, Robert became a father again, this time to a son who he and Lou named Thomas. With his family and business portfolio growing in Memphis, Robert was resolute about staying and helping to rebuild the city. The Bill Street District was the heart of black Memphis. After the riots, those in African-American community who remained flowed into the southern tip of Memphis, a district extending from the riverfront for 11 blocks into the city. So this was like Black Wall Street in Memphis. It's the Black Wall Street, one of the Black Wall Streets that people don't know or don't talk about. This was like a Black Wall Street. We only talk about Tulsa. There was more than just Tulsa, okay? Uh, after, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, this, uh, it's Dirt Streets held an office of the Freed Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, that's another thing we need to read is, is talk about the Freedmen's Bureau. A black church. Of course, it got to be a black church. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, black rooming houses, brick stores and bars and wood frame houses. In Bill, the African-American community built a stronghold after the riots, dancing to the music of traveling black brass bands and saloons and dressing in their best clothes to attend church. Following Sunday church service, men still dressed in suits with gold and silver watch chains hanging from their pockets, congregated on corners to socialize, laugh, and make small talk. The thrones of black people on the streets were a constant source of complaint for white women who had to cross through the district to run errands. One Sunday afternoon, Robert was standing on a street corner talking with a group of men. A police officer approached the men and told them to disperse. When they didn't comply, he grabbed Robert by his collar. Robert wrestled free, drew his gun from his hip, and fired a warning shot over the officer's head. The officer then pulled his gun, pistol whipped Church over the head, and dragged him off to jail. Church hired a lawyer and evaded any formal charges. The white rioters had burned Church's billiard hall to the ground the night they had shot him, but in 1870, it was rebuilt. He leased a two-story brick building on Bill Street. The first floor held a bar in its main room, laid out much like the parlors of his father's ship. The bar was stocked with liquors, fine wines, and expensive cigars. The next room held a billiard hall with a new pool table. In the third room was a barber shop of his own, with its own interest. Outside the building was a watermelon stand where a boy church employee called out watermelon, watermelon, hiring foot traffic, luring foot traffic towards church's corner. Over each instrument was a black sign letter with gold leaf that read R.R. Church. So Mr. Robert Reed Church then went up and bought some real estate and he said, yeah, the devil ain't still in there. He said, I'm going to rebuild it again. And I ain't going to just rebuild it. It's going to be better. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be more. And he literally had multiple streams of income within the building that he used. So here's, here's another thing that we can learn from this. Pay for black folk from a millionaire. See, this is why I study millionaire. You study me, you say, okay. See, many of us, when we think about real estate and we want to do multi-unit uh, properties, we're thinking about residential. Let me get some renters in here and then they can pay the mortgage and then I can live for free. How many of y'all think about multi-business uh, complexes or, or a strip mall where you own the damn mall and you put all your businesses in that mall and the businesses pay for the building itself? 
How many of y'all think about that? Commercial multi-unit. Now I got a pool hall. I got a barber shop. What else? Let me go back and read all this stuff again. All this stuff that they made. Got a watermelon stand. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my goodness. Let's read this again. He leased a two-story brick building on Bill Street. The first floor held a bar in its main room. So he got a bar. Laid out with laid out like the parlors of the fellowship. The bar was stocked with fine liquors, wines, and expensive cigars. The next room held the billiard hall. So there's the pool hall. Right? To go play the pool. And the third room was a barber shop. Outside the building, he uh he he employed a, a, a young man to to, to be out there bringing in traffic. Watermelon, watermelon. So he given opportunities as well, hiring people also. Over each entrance was a black sign lettered to gold leaf that read R.R. Church. What's going on, Mr. Phillips? So this brother, this brother Robert Reed Church back in, I don't know, 1870. Got a two-story building with multiple businesses that he owns within the building. Opportunity. Now I'm saying I'm just saying I don't hear I don't I know it's like 2019 and you think that we're a little bit more sophisticated, but I ain't really hearing nobody talk about real estate in this way. I hear it a lot of different ways, but I don't hear nobody in the black community that I know that I heard talking about real estate talking about real estate in this way. Own a building and put all your businesses, all your great business ideas in one building. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that either because I don't know if I want all my businesses in one building. They come tell my building all my businesses. But at any rate, I mean, that's probably what they had to do back then. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I now think, I don't know if I want all of them in the same building. I, I, that might be too easy to take me down. I, I might need to spread it out a little bit. But y'all get my point. <laughs> Woo! A quick word from our sponsor. The Black Fortunes. Uh, the story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Uh, chapter 7, Part 4. Bob Church versus Jim Crow. Okay, got two more parts. Okay, let's go. Let's get it. <clears throat> uh, one winter, a few years later, it snowed in Memphis for the first time in memory. A snowfall in the Mississippi Delta was unexpected, but Robert Reed Church had foreseen such an event and was prepared for the occasion. In a previous year, on a trip up north, he purchased a sleigh. His friends had made fun of him. Uh-oh. That sounds like he's about to make some money. <laughs> he purchased a sleigh. Ain't never been no snow. Sound like no one art. Okay now, Mr. Turk. His friends have made fun of him. How many guys have did something? Everybody was like, what the hell you doing? Ain't no snow in Memphis. What you got a sleigh for? Everybody else laughing at him. Well, it's snowing now. His friends made fun of him thinking he was insane and brought a sled back to Memphis, a hot, muggy city year-round. Robert predicted that one day, everybody put on so one day, one day, it will snow here. One day. And guess what he said, people? He basically said, and when it does, 
I'm going to be prepared. See, there's a simple philosophy that goes like this, and it says this, that it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than to have an opportunity and not be prepared. It's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than to have an opportunity and not be prepared. One day it will snow. And when it does, I'm ready. <laughs> and he would have an opportunity to use it. You'll see, he told them, when the snow finally did come, he affixed it to his horse and rode around town with his young daughter, married next to him. As they glided through the streets of Memphis, pulling up, pulled by a galloping steed, they watched his people on the sidewalks and in their yards, played in the snow and tossed snowballs at one another. At one point, he was struck by a hail of snowballs and laughed, thinking it was a good-natured fun. But when he picked up one of the snowballs, he found that it was a rock covered in snow. A larger rock then came hurling at him and, he, and hit him in the face. Robert pulled out the revolver he kept at his side and pointed at the man who had, thro who had thrown the rock. He let off a shot and they scattered. Robert drove the sled home. My father had the most violent temper of any man I ever met, his daughter recalled. Church saloons were a constant center of police activity. On many nights, his bars were the sites of brawls, shootings, and stabbings. In the late 1860s, his old friend from the docks, Blanche K. Bruce, walked into his bar. Since emancipation, he had become one of the wealthiest black men in Mississippi, having purchased a large sharecropping plantation there. He was weighing a run for the United States Senate and wanted to know what church a black man of similar backgrounds and status thought of the idea. If elected, he would be the second ever black senator. Church advised Bruce to run. I'll support you, he assured him. After Bruce announced his candidacy, he returned to church saloon several times to raise money or talk strategy with him. In 1875, he was elected to the Senate from Mississippi. After Bruce's election and with his own money, celebrity, and political connections, Church became a political power broker, seemingly overnight. A political power broker. Their rough and tumble environment aside, his saloons also served as a de facto headquarters for black political and civil rights activity. See, beautiful people, this is what happens when we understand the power of ownership. See, because they own some stuff, they own some buildings, they own some buildings, they could then use those buildings for strategic meetings and headquarters and stuff like that to be able to talk amongst themselves away from everybody else because it's the state they talking in the place that they own aspiring black politicians will wade through a crowd of gamblers and partiers to talk to him local republicans will often visit his bar to ask for an endorsement or advice his burgeoning political machine was mockingly called deciety by white racists who doubted that church and his friends as black men had the ability to make any political impact Church and his band of black political mavens would face an uphill battle. In 1877, the remainder of the Union forces in Memphis left the city when the newly elected President Rutherford B. Hayes decreed that he was returning to the South to home rule. Hayes ordered away the Union troops that had protected blacks and their white Republican allies in the South. 
Almost immediately, ex-Confederates returned to power. As the constituents of an anti-Black Democratic Party eager to reverse a decade of racial progress. Now we're seeing also the impact, everybody put it so impact, the impact of the president, right? When a new president comes into office, they move policy, laws to their favor, whatever that may be. So Rutherford B. Hayes, the new president, came in and he must have been a little bit of racism, I guess. I don't know. And he kind of undid all that had been all the progress that had been made over the past decade. And once they told them union troops, y'all got to get out of town, that left the gates wide open for the ex-Confederates to come back into power. And we're going to see what happened. And reverse a decade. This is a reverse thing. You were know like, can we get into the end of a decade right now? And I don't know when you might listen to this episode, but it's now October 24th of 2019. So we're getting to the end of a decade. Can you imagine if uh, the next president or whoever goes into power and, and they revert, they put some stuff into place that reverses the racial progress or reverses the economic progress or reverses uh, whatever type of progress that's been made over the past 10 years? Can you imagine? Reverse the progress that was made through the Obama years. Reverse the progress that was made through the Clinton years. Can you imagine? Just from one move. And a lot of that move has to do with us deciding not to vote, by the way. I mean, do I need to go there? I mean, you know. When you don't vote, then you're basically saying whatever happens, happens. And if it happens and it negatively impacts our progress, I can't complain because I didn't even vote. At least I voted and then I let the chips fall where they may. But when you don't vote, you're basically saying whatever happens, happens. And anyway, it's all, it's all I just got to deal with it. And then it becomes and it reverses your progress of the past 10 years. Reverses your family's progress over the past decade. Then you're going to complain about who's in office. Oh, we need him impeached. Well, you want him impeached, but you didn't want to vote to keep him from getting there in the first place. I mean, do I need to go here tonight? I didn't want to go here tonight, but y'all making me go here tonight. You want to vote to get a man impeached, but you didn't want to vote to keep him out of office. Silly wabbits. These humans are silly wabbits. <laughs> Woo! Black Fortress. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Uh, chapter 7, Part 5, uh, Bob Church versus Jim Crow. The summer of 1878 was muggy and hot and beset by swarms of mosquitoes. On the first day of August, a steamboat worker who had slipped out of a yellow fever quarantine in Vicksburg, Mississippi, 
sat down to eat in a restaurant by the docks operated by a woman named Kate Bionda. He infected Bionda, who died just over two weeks later, but not before infecting numerous others and beginning a yellow fever outbreak in Memphis. The infection often resulted in the vomiting of blood and the developing of John Dice, which gave the eyes and the skin and it affected a yellow hue. It spread quickly and could kill within a few weeks. In Memphis, the epidemic exploded, exploded with more than a thousand infections and 200 deaths within the first few weeks. When Robert heard of the first cases, he rushed home and packed all his children's things into his trunk. He then took Thomas, 11, and Mary, 15, to the train station. At the station, people who were departing were weeping as, they, as, as were those they abandoned. You're leaving us poor folks behind. A voice shouted from the crowd, but you better watch out. Death can find you where you are going just as easy it can find you here, as easy it can find us here with yellow fever. Death can find you where... <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Uh, death can find you wherever you can't. You can't run from death. Anyway, church... Church's father also left Memphis during the outbreak. He moved to Monmouth, Arkansas with his wife and daughter to receive medical treatments for rheumatism and perhaps escape the possibility of catching the fever. Robert couldn't give too much thought to his father's departure. He was much more concerned with the fate of his children and his loved ones who remained in Memphis. Shortly after arriving in Arkansas, however, Captain Church died of a brain aneurysm. Uh, Church barely had time to grieve as the outbreak worsened and the death toll rose. As he walked to a saloon, every day he saw bodies lining the streets. Each day as he worked, he heard funeral bells chiming. Nearly every hour, his deaths mounted to more than 200 a week. Just as blacks had fled Memphis after the race riots, whites fled Memphis in even larger numbers during the outbreak, leaving behind whites without the means to relocate in the majority of African-American populations. As the outbreak wore on, African-Americans who were infected with yellow fever died at a lower rate than whites, perhaps due to a resistance developed by African-Americans from increased exposure to yellow fever during slavery. One day, while he was walking the streets, he lifted up one of the rickety wood planks that was used to pave the roads, and something told him to take a closer look. When he peeled up the rotten wood, he found a pool of filthy, foul-smelling water. He theorized that the unsanitary condition of the streets had to be responsible for the spread of sickness. He came to believe that once the streets were paved over, the yellow fever epidemic would subdue, would subside. The pools of water under the streets were indeed the culprit, as they served as the breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which scientists could later learn were the vector for the yellow fever virus. Church followed through on his hunch by buying up houses for pennies on the dollar for families fleeing Memphis and became a large-scale property owner in the city, knowing that if the city rebounded after the fever, he would become rich. He also increased his purchase order for whiskey, which he sold as an antiseptic during the worst days of the plague. This is a smart <laughs> This is This is something. Most people don't have that kind of foresight. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a basic philosophy. That do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is selling, I'm buying. Everybody else is buying, I'm selling. That's how you get rich. Just, just do the opposite of what everybody Y'all selling? Okay, well, I'm going to go buy pennies on the dollar. I'm going to hang in here. We're going to figure this thing out. 
And when it returns, when it rebounds, as it always does, as the cycle does, when it comes back, I'm going to be rich. I'm rich, bitch! <laughs> In 1879, when the epidemic began to abate, the city of Memphis emerged bankrupt. After years of people and businesses fleeing, the city was out of money. In order to pay down its debts, the local government issued bonds. The first bond was sold for $1,000, $27,000 today, uh, today's money to Robert Reed Church. To the, to the surprise of many, Memphis's most hated black citizen was the first to step up to try to save the city. After his bond purchase, other prominent local businessmen and families followed suit. Church's actions helped Memphis survive the outbreak and rebuild after it, garnering him goodwill from Memphis's white citizens and solidifying his reputation as the city's most prominent black son. Meanwhile, the money from the bonds was used to rebuild Memphis, and as one of the city's largest property owners, Church stood to make a hefty song from the redevelopment. He said to make a hefty song from the redevelopment. Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. This is the New Black Wall Street Book Club where black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. Now, I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.theblackbillionairesclub.com, www.theblackbillionairesclub.com, you can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes, to improve financial literacy within our community, and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth. To build an institution that will teach the next generation about money, and your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, say, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club. We want you to remember this, that it takes a village, and it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got, people. And thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is. Mr. DJ, hit the music new 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 black new it's the new black wall street book club with your host evan jefferson evan jefferson it's time for us to go yeah now you ain't gotta leave the computer but we encourage you to get out there and learn and apply all the things you learn at the new black wall street book club book club yeah